This is part two. In part one of speaking the truth in love, does anybody remember what word we used that the Bible uses to bring about this idea where we're bringing truth to where change is needed in a person's heart? It's not always thought about as a being a positive word. Rebuke, right? Rebuke. This idea of confronting is really all we're referring to here. And we want to confront an individual with love and with humility. And we examine that process of confrontation really from our end. So as the ambassadors on our end, how should we go about confronting somebody and, and what should we be thinking about as we're going through that process? So let me just review here this process. The first step is to start with ourselves. We have to make sure that our hearts are right, that we're coming from things from God's point of view and not our own. And it's not tainted with our opinions or with our frustrations or our annoyances or whatever you're carrying potentially from a sinful heart perspective into that situation. We don't want that to be murking or muddying the water as we start out talking with the other person. So we want to make sure that, that our hearts are right. And then we want to understand why people need to be confronted. Um, as we're talking with the person, remember the week before we were talking about asking questions and gathering data and organizing the data, but we're wanting to make sure that is it something maybe that they're thinking about wrongly? Do they have wrong thinking? Um, do they have a wrong view of God in their life? Uh, are they just thinking emotionally about things? So we need to understand why the people, why this person needs to be confronted. And then step number three, we need to speak with God's goal in view. Again, this isn't just I think you need to change because you know it's the right thing to do. No, we want repentance. We want them to, they're going this way, their hearts are going this way, and they need to repent and go the opposite direction, which is God's way. We want true repentance and we want their hearts to be changed. And this goes back to the bigger picture of we don't just want to try to staple on new fruit on their life. We need to change the root, the heart issue behind the fruit. Our goal here uh, last week was talking about, again, from our perspective, but now we want to discuss further here and consider exactly what that process should look like as we're now talking to somebody else. This is, emphasizes the asking the right questions and getting the right information and really an interaction with the other person. Confrontation. Confrontation is more common than we think it is. Probably if I were to ask you, think about even today, did you confront anybody? I'm thinking about my son confronting me about putting on his sock not to his liking. <laughs> well, I'm thinking uh, it could be something, I didn't have this happen today, but it could be you just driving down the street and confronting another driver. Hopefully not with your window rolled down and you yelling out the window, but like confronting another driver or um, confronting your spouse about how they didn't make the bed or I, I don't know, whatever it is. Confrontation happens. It's very common for confrontation to happen and for something to be probably more regular in our lives than we think it is. And because it is, is something that is so common, it really is important for us as we are serving as instruments in other people's lives to make sure that we, again, are coming at things from the right perspective. And so the real question behind this is whose agenda are we following when we're confronting another individual. Is this something where we are just confronting and communicating our opinions to other people? Is it something where we're just trying to get them to do what, what will please us or will make the situation easier or better? Or are we really helping other people see their lives in the mirror of God's word and hopefully, like we said, bringing them to a situation where they repent and they change? 
And so it's important for us to make sure that we are confronting the person from a biblical perspective. There's several questions that we're going to look at here and several several steps. It's really a progressive step, and this is the practical side of it that, it, that I would encourage you to take the notes on to think about. As we, con- we confront other people, we want to do more than just uh, bring to them a list of charges. This is what the Scripture says, and this is what you're doing wrong. Confrontation has to be more than that, and it has to be different than that. And it goes to a bigger purpose. Just, let me just start with this, and I'll come back to this, but you know this. If you want change to happen, there is a biblical principle that we have pruned down to four words. You put off and then you put on. What does that look like and how do I help somebody come to that conclusion and go through that process so that they have heart change? That's what we're looking at here. So let me start with this. They've tried to make this really easy for you. It's a four-step process, but they all start with the letter C or first word. Consideration. Consideration. As I'm working with an individual, the main question that I'm wanting to ask here is what does this individual need to see about their life? In other words, how can I help them see what God wants them to see? God's uh, agenda, not ours. What does God want them to see in this situation? So consideration. It's funny because when you, when you ask a person about their situation, and specifically about their story, what oftentimes is missing? (laughs) Them. They'll tell you about the situation, about how they were wronged, and about how this person did this thing to them, and about how that happened to them out of their control, but like there's no personal responsibility, or maybe they didn't even mention themselves in the whole situation. By the way, I don't want this to sound, this, this again should not sound harsh, and we've talked about this several times here, it's not, not being sensitive to suffering that they've gone through or struggles that they've been through or even about maybe how somebody has, has sinned against them. It's not being harsh to those things. However, it is helping them see that they need to be in the center of their story because God is concerned about their heart and their responses to the situation. Again, it doesn't mean that those other things didn't happen or that those other things weren't wrong or help the situation be worse. I just keep thinking over and over and over about an example that Dr. Berg used, and I probably have already used this once before. You may not know that you have anger and frustration in your heart until somebody drops a concrete brick on your foot. And then all of a sudden, it's very evident that you have anger in your heart. Now, if somebody keeps purposely dropping bricks on your foot, that doesn't mean that what they're doing is not wrong. Like, well, you just keep sinning, you just keep sinning, you keep sinning. Something needs to be done and said to that other person who is dropping bricks on your foot. But again, God is concerned with your response and your heart's response in these situations. So helping the person see what they need to see is is step number one. Now, I want to, there's important for us as we attempt to accomplish this goal to ask five important questions. You have to follow these steps to help bring them to the conclusion that like, they have to take ownership for their own sin. Okay, so step number one, ask the person, what's going on? This question really kind of forces your, your individual here to focus on the situations and the circumstances that the, the person, the individual is following. And there's two reasons why this is really important. The first one is so that they can see that they are in their story. They're in this story. They're a part of this. But the second reason is also to help 
you, as you're working with that individual, help them understand the details of what's going on. Remember, we gave you this warning before. You need to make sure that you're not just assuming things and you're filling in the missing pieces because that can lead you to wrong conclusions that lead to eventually wrong advice. So it's important for us to figure out what's going on here. The second one, what were you thinking? When I'm asking the person, I'm talking and I'm asking them, what were you thinking and feeling was going on in this situation? This kind of really takes the eyes off of the situation itself and puts it on that individual and helps them examine their own heart. This is the practical side of it. This is how you go about doing it. How do I get them to take their eyes off of the person who's dropping the brick on their foot or the, the concrete block on their foot and put it on their heart, the thing that actually needs to be addressed here if change at the heart level is going to take place. <clears throat> and it, it also will really help that individual understand how their heart is always interacting with what's going on around you. You're not always the victim. You're not just passively there and somebody does wrong to you and then that's the end of it. You're, you're part of that situation there. And again, your responses are important in that situation. God holds us responsible for our responses there. So we're never just the victims. We are always interpreting our situations and things that are going around and, it, and those interpretations are going to shape our actions and our reactions to every single scenario there. So it's important for us to identify the emotions and reactions that we have in the, as the direct responses to those situations and to take ownership for our behavior there. So what were you, the individual, thinking and feeling was going on? Third one there, what did you do in response? This question comes after those first two questions because once we see that our behaviors are really shaped by our hearts, then we see that now our responses are the direct result of the situation and our hearts, whatever is in our hearts. Your response to the situation is not just because of the situation, it's also because of how you interpreted the situation and then what that caused you to do next. Yes, Amy. What do you do if someone is totally off base? Like if you know what they're saying is almost like a lie. Sometimes when that's the case, I have found that their perspective on things is it wrong or they haven't thought about it from everybody's perspective or from all all angles here i don't know if this is helping you with it but like if it's a situation where you feel like you're wronged by this other person and it's made you frustrated about this situation you could say something like have you ever stopped to think that maybe that person didn't mean that or maybe you didn't quite understand how that came out of their mouth or the intent that they had I'm like, oh okay i can see why that happened but then that still gives you an opportunity to address their reaction of their heart. I think that's the thing that we're, it's often miss, missing is that they, they just they don't take ownership for their response. Until they take ownership for that response, they're not going to repent. That, that's where, the God's, where God's mirror is important. Like, how is your response to this? How does God say that that response is? Well, I'm angry. You're not going to find anything in God's word that's going to say it's okay for you to be angry. I think that's where it's, um, again, not our opinion, but like how does your response to the situation match up with what God's word said is, a, is the correct response. You're just the ambassador. <laughs> like I'm just telling you what, God, what God, has, God has told us. This is not my opinion because if at any point it becomes your opinion, if they don't agree with your opinion, how's that going to work out? You're no longer an instrument <laughs> that they're going to be listening to. If we fail to expose the connection between interpretation and response, 
then we give Satan a huge advantage because he's the teller of plausible lies. Just as he did in the garden, Satan works with partial and distorted truths, and he lies to us and has the power because they begin with something that's true, but then he twists them into something that's not true. If we interpret things wrong, then we can justify our behaviors or our responses to things, and that's not right either there. Next question that you would ask the person, why did you do it? Why did you do it? In other words, what were you, what were you seeking to accomplish in your, in your response and in your, in your reaction there? If the second question uncovers thoughts, then this question really it reveals your motives. So the individual, you're really, you're really just asking, asking the individual to consider how your behavior is an attempt to get what is important to him. Remember we talked about like what value they have in a situation. Oh, I'm going to get even, you know, this person needs to get what they deserve, et cetera, whatever. And again, that takes our, our focus off of what is in our hearts. And sometimes that then can kind of like justify in the person's mind, if they don't have that correct view of things, they can justify why, why they did what they did. So why did you do it? Making sure that again, that it aligns with what God said. And the last one there, what was the result? This question not only seeks to uncover the consequences, but the way these consequences are a direct result of the thoughts and motives of our hearts. So it, it's important for us to get the individual to examine the fruit in, their, in our life, but it's also important to make sure that we understand that that fruit is just a harvest of what's happening there at the roots. And the only way that we're going to see if the heart is responding correctly is to hold that as a mirror against God's word. All right, so that's the first C, consideration. Next one here, this is really the next logical step, is the confession aspect of it. What does God want the person to admit and confess? So once we've gotten them to consider the situation and their responses to things, and in this case, how their heart does not line up with what God's Word said is the right response, then we need to get them or, or help lead them to this next step, which is confession. Admitting that we're wrong is, is not easy. We would rather blame, we would rather uh, defend, we would rather accuse somebody else. We would rather uh, say, well, if, if, if they hadn't done this, then I wouldn't, I wouldn't have responded this way. Real confession is something that is only from God and is something that comes from a humble heart. And so again, this may be something that is not... And by the way, don't assume that the person, don't assume confession. Um, it, sometimes it may be appropriate for you to like call the person to confess. Like what you're doing is wrong. You need to confess that to God. Maybe help them pray or help them even admit the sin and, uh, and to help lead them to seeking forgiveness from God there. Uh, third one there, commitment. Commitment. So as I said, these first two are the putting, the putting off. These last two C's are the putting on. To what new ways of living is God calling this person to? This is something that I think God was kind of uh, bringing to my attention. And then this is the thing that I was talking to my players about. Hopefully, by way of illustration, it can help you understand this. I think a lot of times, especially for mature Christians who are sensitive to the Holy Spirit, we consider, we confess, but I'm not always sure about how much commitment we have. And I'll go ahead and put this up on the screen, but don't get to this one yet. The last C is change. I'm not sure how committed we are to commitment and change because this is what I hear. Let me illustrate it with a silly example. Don't fall prey to this in less than a month's time. On January 1st, everybody tells us what, Emmy? 
I'm gonna have a resolution to lose weight or whatever your resolution is. Okay, no, I called on you for the first part. I did not, I, your, your part was over and then I went on to the weight part, okay, all right? So your resolution to whatever. Here's the other one that I always hear too. I'm gonna, I'm gonna be resolved to get off my phone more and be on it less. And what happens within five minutes? <laughs> You're checking your phone. You're writing it on your phone. You're writing it on your phone. I'm gonna be committed. I'm looking at my Bible about Bible verses about not being addicted to things. And this idea of commitment I'm going to do this, and these are the things that I'm going to do to be committed. If I've got somebody that says, I'm gonna stop a student who says, I'm gonna get better grades, I'm gonna buckle down the last half of the semester, I'm gonna get better grades, I'm gonna stop wasting time on my phone and on YouTube and on my computer and whatever, and I'm gonna study. And then they go to their bunk, they open their books and open their notes, and they start to work, and they grab their phone and they put it right by their side. And the first time somebody texts them, they say, nope, no, nope, I'm gonna be committed to this. But then when that bu phone buzzes a second and third time, what do they do? They pick it up. And then they keep their phone by them. And then 45 minutes later, oh yeah, I was gonna be committed to this. And the, the thing that I constantly hear is like, I make these declarations of I'm going to do, but then I can never be committed. But if you look at their lifestyle, they don't actually do anything that's going to place themselves in a position to have success. If you're going to work out, that means that you're going to have to say no to doing other things and you're gonna to have to get in your car and drive to the workout place and go there every day. It doesn't matter if you feel like it or not, you're going to do it because you're committed to it. And I think that especially in this day and age, we have a culture that's not really committed to anything. All they're committed to is just doing whatever they wanna do, which really isn't that much. If you're going to be committed to something, there is a new way of living. You can't keep doing the same things over and over and expect different results. That's called insanity. I'm gonna keep doing the same things over and over and expect different results. That's insane thinking. There is a new way of living. You must have a putting on of something else. It's, I'm gonna look better, I'm gonna dress better. So you take off those clothes, and then the next morning you put the same clothes back on and you're like, I don't know why I don't look any better. That's silly. But that's the same thing that we do with a lot of things in our lives. If you're gonna change, you need to do something different and then you need to be committed to it. Why do, not, why do people not, eat, not lose weight? Because they still eat Oreos every night before bed. Like what, but I'm exercising? Yes, but you're not eating any differently. You're making the wrong commitments. You need to be committed to the things that actually matter. And that, okay, those are all silly examples here, but new ways of living connected to heart change, there's, there need to be some very practical, tangible things that you do differently. Okay, so being actually committed to something and a new way of living, what is God calling this person to do? What do they want, to, what, what does he want them to change? What new responses? I just, I, I just get this sense too much that it's just like, I just can't do it, so I'm just gonna give up with this, or God's just gonna have to do it. But like, you're not gonna play any part of it. That's not how it works. Yes, ma'am. I was just gonna add to that though, a lot of times the lack of commitment is due to the lack of truly understanding the, the the sin or the, right. the problem. Right. In other words, people want to change 
and they really mean it, like Paul said, the things I don't want to do, I do, okay? The, they really mean it, but then if they put on the same clothes or they still eat the Oreos or they still respond incorrectly, it really goes back to, I don't really believe what I'm doing is harmful. Right. And that in itself is an area that needs to be addressed. Yes, and, and that's the fruit stapling that we're talking about. All you're trying to do is staple apples onto a pear tree and you're wondering why it's still producing pears. So I think that would be a great thing for you to communicate to somebody is that if you are not seeing, I've committed to this a thousand times and it still doesn't work, then it's probably a pretty good clue that you are not, you are not looking to change what actually needs to be changed. There's something much deeper that needs to be changed. The kid that doesn't clean his room and then parents says, I've told you a thousand times that you need to clean your room, they don't have a room cleaning sin problem. They have a submitting to authority problem. There's a heart problem underneath of that. It's not just that they don't clean their room. So I think that's great. Like whether that's in your own heart or in somebody that you're working with, I've tried this a hundred times and it doesn't work. We're addressing the wrong things or that person's thinking is if I only change this, then it will have lasting change. That's not, that's not going to ha have lasting change. That leads us to the last one there. So when does change take place? Change only takes place when there's change. When I have a consistent, and it may be like, I need to change my routine. Again, if you're, I'm gonna lose weight in 2022, then you're gonna have to get a new routine of maybe waking up earlier and actually getting in the car and putting on clothes and driving to the gym. You're like, I don't know why I don't ever work out. Cause you never get in the car and actually drive to the gym. And it may be something that simple. And so there are some practical steps um, that may need to be changed. So what needs to be changed? And then the actual change that goes along with it, applying, actually applying these commitments. Consideration, confession, commitment, and then change these four steps will help provide us with a road, roadmap of how to actually change. Let's go on here and talk about learning to confront biblically. Um, because of time's sake, I'm, I'm not going to talk about this, but I would encourage you to write down and go back and look at 2 Samuel 12, 1 through 7. In Scripture, as you look at an individual working with another individual, there is not a reading the person the riot act style of confrontation. What you see, especially with Christ, is that confrontation takes place basically through interaction, where he's coming alongside somebody or he's interacting with a large group of people. He's not standing there just, again, reading them the riot act and telling them how they're wrong. Uh, you're thinking like, yes, he did. He did that with the Pharisees. That's an exception. That's with a hard-hearted person. If you have a hard-hearted person, you're gonna make, you may need to direct them with the, you're doing, the, what you're doing is wrong. But what you're going to see in most cases, especially with another Christian, is that there is a coming alongside and an interacting. Does anybody know what happens in 2 Samuel 12? It's when Nathan goes to, da to, to David. And Nathan does not just say, you did wrong, you sinned with Bathsheba. He actually, if you go through this, you'll see that there's a two-way two interaction where there is a talking, a dialogue that's going back and forth. He uses a comparison. Do you remember the comparison? Sheep. Yeah, stealing the sheep. And what did, at the end of that story, what was David about to do? We're going to find that guy and we're going to kill him. And what did Nathan say? Basically, takes that metaphor and uses it to self-confront and says, you're that guy. 
And then there was a summary of this is, this is what has happened and this is the change that needs to take place. That is a model that you see not just in that, but you will see that all throughout the New Testament, especially in the parables. And with, we've mentioned Jesus and the woman at the well was another one as well, where the person ends up and is like, that's wrong. And Christ basically says, yes, you're that person or you're the exact same. So when it comes to confronting biblically, we have to be careful that we're not just, I see what's wrong with you. You need to see what's wrong with you. This is what, this is how we're going to fix it. But helping that person and bring them along, because again, that person is going to be much, be much more willing to just because of how the human heart is. If you're confronted, a lot of times we like to put up the wall. Hey, wait, 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 wait a second here. But as we talk through, there was, see it even with David, there was no like fighting back. There was repentance that came from that. Um, and that's what we're attempting to lead the person to there. Just to summarize the goal of confrontation, we want lasting change. We don't want a commitment that's made. We don't want a New Year's resolution. We want lasting change that's going to happen at the person's heart level. Not fixing potholes, not stapling on new fruit, but actual lasting heart change. The progressive steps of, sanct- uh, of com- confrontation, consideration, confession, commitment, and then change, the four C's there. And then finally, the goals of confrontation were there to help the person see that, that their sin and then help lead them to repentance, obviously just being an instrument with the Holy Spirit, conv- being the one that convicts, and that this is essential for us to have an interactive technique and tactic so that we are confronting biblically there.